Love it. All right, sweet. Um, hey, we're in 1 Samuel 23. 1 Samuel 23. Why don't you guys turn there if you're not already there. 1 Samuel chapter 23. Let me catch up to speed. Um, I, I, I do want you to know what we've been doing, the big picture of our, what our church is going through. We have kind of prayed through this year of 2022 being um, the, the, the year of the story of God. Meaning, who is God and what is the story of God? What does that mean? We started this year, if you remember, it sounds like a while ago, we did the attributes of God. I really love that. I enjoyed that. Who is God? God is love. God is joy. God is just. We went through the attributes of God. And then our hope was, you know what? We want to tell the story of God through the kings, through the nation of Israel, through how did the whole idea of kings come about? You know, you have the Torah, then you have judges, then what was next? You have the kings, you have, you have the Samuels, but you have the idea of like, there is a king that the people wanted. And this king they wanted, God gave them. And that was King Saul. And he failed epically. It was the king the people wanted, God gave them what they wanted, and he was not the king they needed him to be or expected him to be. Then we see this young shepherd boy in chapter 16, we see King David. David, the shepherd boy from Bethlehem, who's filled with the Holy Spirit, whose own brothers don't receive him. And obviously he's such a clear picture of the son of David, of the Messiah to come, Jesus, the shepherd boy, in a sense, from Bethlehem, the one who would also be filled with the spirit, David is a great reminder to us of the king our hearts long for. Now, David fails epically along the way. There are many times we can learn from David in like a negative sense. But David is creating that desire for like that king that will basically meet the needs of the people, that will love and serve the people the way, the way they're looking for. So you have King David in chapter 16. Remember this. Then chapter 17, David and Goliath, that story happens. Uh, David slays Goliath. Chapter 18, the people are singing his praises. Saul gets furious at David. He's jealous of David. You know, you know Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his tens of thousands. So Saul's jealous and bitter. Chapter 19 and 20, we see that Saul is out to kill. David, but David had some really good friends. And we see this, you know, friendship between him and Jonathan. Jonathan is the son of King Saul. And we see this unlikely friendship that grows out. Last week in chapter 21 and 22, if you're with us, we saw like a big shift in the story, which David is on the run. David is in exile. So now David went from being, you know, even the, the King Saul's bodyguard. He's also, remember, David's the son-in-law of Saul. He married uh, Saul's daughter, Michael. I mean, there's such a tight bond in so many different ways, but David's on the run from King Saul. He's fleeing for his life. We looked at the showbread story, how he ate, ate uh, from the table of showbread. We looked at how David acted crazy to get out of a moment. Like David really wasn't in, in the wilderness experience early on. David really wasn't necessarily trusting or looking to God or seeking after God initially. But we talked about David in the cave where he wrote some classic Psalms. And when David was in the cave, he had this heart change. God brings him 400 men we call them the mighty men of David, but in reality, these men were distressed, discouraged, filled with debt. I mean, they're not a good group of guys, but he turned them eventually into these mighty men. So he has these men. We ended last week with Saul being so furious. He kills 85 priests. One escapes, goes to David, and this is where we pick up today in 1 Samuel 23. All right. So I'm going to kind of remind you where we're at today because I, I do believe chapter 23, and we're going to look at chapter 24. We're doing two chapters again, like third time in a row. Isn't this great? But here's the idea. What we see in David is a heart shift as well. Something happened in that cave where David was kind of doing things on his own and he had to act crazy and he had to go to, you know, he didn't really seek God. You don't seem really praying, but now we hear we see him praying. We see him seeking God, like some shift happened. Saul is seeking David. David is seeking God. There's a major shift that happens. And so the title today is simply this, what are you seeking after? 
What are you seeking after? Saul was seeking after David. In his mind, if I could just kill David, my life would be better. David, in chapter 23, it's really clear. He starts seeking after God in a really profound way. He's like, I'm going to seek after God. And not just God's like directions or God's help. I'm actually just going to seek after God. And so we're going to break down our story, kind of looking at it that way. Uh, and I really do think it just poses this question. Saul was on a search for something. David was on a search for something. And what are you on the search for? What are you seeking after? So why don't we just do this? Let's pray. Uh, let's spend some time just kind of giving this to the Lord. And then we'll look at our text. Cool? Yes? All right, let's do it. Father, we just want to say thank you. We know that just um, for many of us, myself included, this has just maybe been an exhausting week. We're tired, but Lord, we come to you because Jesus, you tell us to come to you, that your burden is light, that your yoke is easy. And Jesus, we need you. Um, We ask that we would not just look at this as interesting or old stories that don't apply today, but these were written for our learning for our instruction, for our hope. And Lord, we ask that you do that. God, that you would just create hope in us, that you'd remind us to seek what matters. God, that we would have a heart like David. God, that we would learn from these stories and apply them and just experience them. And that Jesus, you would be seen. We know that the the scriptures speak of you. So help us to see you, Jesus. In your precious name, amen. Amen. When you're tired when you're anxious, when you're stressed out, what do you look to? Like, what do you turn to? What do you go to? When you've had a really bad day, what is it you go home to and you look to to bring you kind of satisfaction? What do you, what do you look to? What do you go to? For me, for a long time, I would go home after a long day when I was stressed out and tired, and I would turn to a bag of Reese's. <laughs> and that was my thing. I know you guys know that, but that was my thing. That was like, for me, it wasn't like a, a drink or a bottle or it was, or a pill bottle. It was nothing. It was, it was Reese's. It was bad. It was a vice though. I mean, not just normal Reese's, but like the classic holiday Reese's that they're extra peanut butter, extra thick. I don't like, I don't even like normal Reese's anymore. It's not enough peanut butter. Like I have to have the holiday Reese's now. If you, if you've ever had, you know what I'm talking about, but that was my thing. And I think when people are stressed out, they a lot of times turn to something. They turn to someone, they call someone, they go to a location, they open up an app, they open up a bottle. I think a lot of us, we've had a long day or tired or anxious or fearful. We turn to something, obviously. And here's a shift because we're going to see David finally turn to God. Like really, I mean, strongly in chapter 23, four times he seeks after God. And I bring this up because I do believe there's a shift here because Saul, it's really clear. And I think we'll see this in the text over and over again. It says, it says Saul sought David, Saul seeking David. There's this idea of searching. And David's like, I'm searching for you. And Saul's like, I'm searching for you. So again, that's why I asked the question, what are you seeking after? What are you seeking after? You know, a lot of times we seek after things that are temporary, that will not satisfy us long-term, that we we seek after it and it kind of fixes the issue maybe in the moment. It doesn't really fix it, but it kind of just quenches it in the moment and it creates like a deeper void, a deeper hunger. What is it you are seeking after? This week I got on one of those, I don't know, weird threads of just like reading about lottery stories, people who won the lottery and like what happened to them. And I just thought this was so interesting because it's so sad. All the, all the stories of people who win the lottery, it's so sad. And I, I'm gonna read it to you. Um, one is named William Post. Listen to this guy. And William Post, in 1988, he won $16.2 million in the Pennsylvania State Lottery. Um, and it says, this was the start of his problems. Soon after, an ex-girlfriend sued him for a share of his winnings and she won a large sum. Then his brother, he hired a hitman to kill his brother 
hoping to inherit some of the winnings. And within one year, one year, William was one million in debt. So he spent 17 million. He won 16, spent 17, one million in debt and filed for bankruptcy. And it says he now lives on food stamps and a $450 a month stipend. You, w- like, you think this will satisfy you. Your girlfriend sues you. Your brother hires a hitman and you're a million dollars in debt. That's his outcome. Listen to this one, Callie Rogers. Callie Rogers, she won. She's in the UK and I guess you can play at 16. Uh, when she was 16, she won about 3 million. It says, this ecstatic 16-year-old spent her winnings on vacations, homes, shopping, friends, and some physical improvements. Six years later, Callie was 22, a single mother of two, who now works as a maid to sustain herself and her family. Today, she's paying off debt induced by her spending, and she has this to say about her winnings, quote, it's brought me nothing but unhappiness. It's ruined my life. The reason why I ask the question of what are you seeking after, right? There's so many of those stories. But what are you seeking after? Because we think if I could just get this, then I would be satisfied. Saul had this mindset, if I could just get David, you're the king, you're the king. But if I could just kill David, then, then my life will be good. David has this mind shift though. He goes, no, no, if I could just get God, I just want you, I just want you. And I think there's a shift that happens. Remember, we saw David last chapter, two chapters ago. He goes to Gath, he goes to the king of Philistia. He literally goes to the Philistines, their enemy for help. David's finally, I think, hitting this moment after the cave moment, and he goes, okay, I'm going to seek you, God. That's it, I'm in. And so here's the kind of the three points today. Here's how we're going to break up our text, and here's what we're going to see. Here's the first point. Um, seeking God's direction, that's what David clearly does, seeking God's direction. Number two, seeking God's heart. We see that clearly revealed in the Psalms. Number three, seeking God's character. The reason why I want to break it down this way is there are three stories. There are two Psalms that we know David wrote out of these stories. So this, like we talked about this last week. Last week, I think we had four stories and five psalms that came out of those. This week, we have uh, three stories and we have two psalms for sure. Maybe a couple more we'll look at. But we get like a window into David's soul in these moments. So as we look at our text, seeking God's direction, seeking God's heart, seeking God's character. You guys ready? Chapter 23, verse one. Let's read number one, seeking God's direction. Chapter 23, verse one. Read with me. It says, now they told David, behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord. He says, shall I go attack the Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, And the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. Twice. And David and his men, they went to Keilah, and they fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. Verse 6, keep reading. When Abathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David, to, to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand. Saul assumes God's doing this. For he has shut himself in by entering the town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, so he seeks the Lord a third time, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant, has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into, the, into his hand? Will Saul come down 
as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Saul will come down. Then David said, fourth time, will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you, the people he just saved. Verse 13. Then David and his men, who were about 600, 600 men now, so he went from 400 to 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and, there, and, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition, and David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph, and Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hands. All right, that's a big story. This is interesting, really fascinating story. David's on the run. Remember, Saul just killed 85 priests. That's how it ends last chapter. He's on the run. He hears about the Jewish people in trouble in Keilah. They are basically reaping the harvest. The Philistines, who are like an army, says, well, we're not going to, you know, do our own farming, so let's just go steal theirs. Let's steal our harvest. So he hears about this attack that's happening to his Jewish people. Even though he's on the run, even though he's being pursued after, he's thinking, how can I help my people? It's interesting. He's, he's not the king. He is the, you know, the anointed king. He will be the king soon, but he's not the king, but still he has this mindset of, I'm going to help my people. Saul, who is the king, is like, I don't even care what's going on there. I just want to kill David. David is already acting, of course, more kingly than Saul is at this point. How can I help these people? They're in trouble. Let's go. So he says to his men, hey, let's go. Let's go help the people of Keilah. They're like, no. David asked the Lord. God's like, go. He asked again, which is never usually wise, but God was very patient. Hey, God, should I go? Like, should I still go? Like, my men don't want to. Like, yes, go. Like, don't worry. The Philistines will be delivered into your hands. Go. Now he went and he wins and he saves the livestock and helps the people of Kela. Short story, amazing story. Here's what I see here. It's fascinating, again, that his men don't want to go, even though the Lord clearly said go. But this is the start of David seeking God. It says David inquired of the Lord. David inquired of the Lord again. David went from going, let me seek the Philistine king's help in Gath to let me now start seeking God's help. He's finally seeking God's direction. Saul is seeking him, but he's finally seeking God's direction. So let me put up here. Four times, David inquired of the Lord. He inquired of the Lord again. He asked two different times, two questions to God. Will Saul come down? And he asked, will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men? So he has these questions. Here's what I love. Um, We need to seek God on, on life decisions, basically. There comes a point in time where you realize, like, I, I might assume something, but I don't want to assume I need to seek God on this. See, I really do believe in the text, it's comparing and contrasting David and Saul, because David's seeking God while Saul is assuming. Notice it says in verse 7, we'll put up here again just so you kind of see it. In verse 7, it says, Saul said, God has given him into my hand. Saul sees David in this vulnerable spot in Keilah, and he goes, this must be God. God has given him into my hand. Saul doesn't say, God, are you giving David in my hand? Saul's not seeking God. Saul's not looking for God's advice. He's not looking for God's direction, but David is. And this is so important. I mean, this is a major shift. David's like, I'm going to seek you, but Saul's like, I'm going to seek David. David is after God's will and directions and heart, while Saul's just after his own will. And I think the text is showing us this. Just because there's an opportunity, there's an opportunity to kill David there. Doesn't mean it's God's will. Why this is so important, we're going to see this in the next chapter in just like a minute, but we're going to see David have an opportunity to kill Saul, and he doesn't. Because just because there's an open door doesn't mean it's God's will. So I want to make this actually really clear, and I try to write it down. Not every open door is a sign of God's will. Because think about this. Saul's assuming 
hey, David's a Kiala. God is putting him into my hands. He's literally think, like, thanking God. God is doing this. David's there. He's in a vulnerable spot. God must be in this. I don't know how many people I've talked to over the years, just like as a pastor, where I hear about their, like, their decision-making and how they discern God's will. And probably the number one answer I get most times, like, how did you decide to do that? Well, the door was open. I'm like, oh, be careful. It's really bizarre. And I, I will say this, like, I understand that line of thinking sometimes, but I, I still think even if the door is open, Lord, do you want me to go through this door? David will see you do that. He'll do that in the cave. Saul just assumes right away, it must be God. It must be God. Four times David is saying, God, are you in this? God, will, will they surrender me? Like, God, what is going on here? And we see that Saul just assumes this. Not every open door is a sign of God's will. Please, I would say, like, just because maybe you see that job opportunity or the option to move, or maybe that you walked into the star, but God wouldn't have had the girl sitting there if you didn't want me to date her. Like, we have the weirdest ways of just kind of reasoning. I would say, like, maybe before you assume just because it worked out or just because the door is open, it still might be worth praying over. I still think there's something David's doing. He's like, I, I actually need to pray over like, all these decisions four times. Remember, the ephod is now with David. The ephod was, would be a part of the high priestly garment. It'd have the ermum and the thummim, and it'd have these two like onk stone, stone things that like would basically help direct the will of God. But God, are you in this? It, the, the idea was maybe one would light up like yes, or one would light up no. But the, the idea though is David is finally seeking God. He's seeking God. Saul's assuming God's in this. It's believed, we can't guarantee this, but it's believed that David wrote Psalm 27 during this time. If you read Psalm 27, it kind of makes sense. Psalm 27, and I'm not just saying this, it is my favorite Psalm. I love that Psalm. And here's what David says in Psalm 27, 14. He says, wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Notice that David says this. Remember, he, he, required, he inquired of the Lord. He inquired of the Lord. He's finally seeking God. And here in Psalm 27, he's like, wait, wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. He'll strengthen your heart. Wait on the Lord. There's something about waiting on the Lord, seeking the Lord. Lord, are you in this? Like, I don't want to do this without you. I don't want to go without you. I don't want to fight without you. God, are you in this? It seems that at this point in time, God is speaking to him. It's also believed, potentially, that David wrote Psalm 16 during this time during his wilderness journeys. And it does seem to make sense. Here's what David said in Psalm 16. Listen to this, Psalm 16, four. He says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. Is this not what the Lord's doing? So in our text, the Lord is providing direction. And David, it seems in Psalm 16, Psalm 20, he's getting it. God, I bless you. You give me direction. You do. Listen, David is seeking finally after God's direction while Saul is just assuming it. And here's what's fascinating to me. In verse 11, when David has to even ask, he goes, God, will the men of Keilah, when Saul shows up, will they betray me into his hand? And the Lord's like, they will. <laughs> they will they'll do it. The people David just saved are going to betray him. David just, and here's why this is so fascinating to me. God told David, go, save the people of Keilah. I know they're going to betray you, and I'm also telling you to go. Is this not the gospel? Please stay with me on that. God's like, Go. Save the people, even though they won't accept you as their king. Because the men of Kala are willing to surrender David over to King Saul. So David, even though they won't acknowledge you as the king, you still need to save them. When you think about those words, what it said, is that not Jesus? Go, save the people, save mankind, even though many will not believe that you are the true king. Go, save them. I turn like, it's almost as if God was saying, save them, even though they don't acknowledge you as king. Save them. 
There's a beautiful lesson here that David is going to, a picture of what the Messiah, the son of David will come and do. He will come to his own, John 1, 11, and his own, his own receive him not. Jesus comes to his own, his own receive him not. He just saved the people. Saul shows up and they're like, here's the guy. Like they're, they're willing to do that. It's crazy. It's crazy. I, when I read the story, I go, how could the people of Keala do this? David just saved you and you're willing to surrender him over. But yet, am I not, do I not like do this in my heart all the time? That Jesus saves me, but do I still acknowledge him in like all these little moments in my life as the one true king? Do I still maybe have other opportunities where I say, oh, I'm going to put this above him? Do I make fearful decisions? Like, I think sometimes I can almost look at this text or I can read this story and go, the people of Keala are so naive, but yet we still do this today. God saves us and we still reject him. He came to his own, his own received him not. But I want you to see David seeking God. And it says, verse 14, listen, Saul sought David every day. Verse 14, God, Saul sought David every day. David, four times, I'm seeking you, God. What's your direction? Saul's seeking God. Saul is seeking David. So notice what they're pursuing. Notice what they're after. David's after the will of God here. Number two is this. We're going to see, I really do believe from the next story, the Psalms reveal that David's like, I'm not even just seeking God your direction. I'm seeking you. So number two is this, seeking God's heart. I just want you, God. Let's keep reading. So verse 15, let's pick up our story. Verse 15. It says, David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. So David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish. And Jonathan strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. Um, I'm not going to spend too much time on this because we talked a lot about J David and Jonathan's like, friendship a few chapters ago. But this is the third time they make a covenant. This is the last time they see each other. The next time we see Jonathan actually even talked about, he's going to be dying next to his dad. Um, that's like the next time we see him. Jonathan was very loyal to David. Jonathan meets him out. He finds him, and he goes, let me tell you everything that's going on. Let me strengthen your hand in the Lord. He isn't just come to like, let me grieve with you, but let me encourage you. Not me, let me just like listen, which is great, but let me also encourage you now in this moment. He's being a good friend. This is like the last time we see him. But again, we see this phrase again, verse 15, David saw that Saul had come to seek his life, seek his life. So he's like, gosh, your dad's just after me. And he's like, well, he's, it's not gonna happen. It's not gonna work out. And that's like the last moment they have together. But we'll keep reading. So that, this little moment between them, verse 19, then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah saying, is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh on the hill of Ahikala, which is south of Jeshimon? I hope I'm saying these right. Uh, now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, may you be blessed by the Lord for you have had compassion on me. Speak to the Ziphites. Go, make yet more sure, know, and see the place where his foot is at, and who has seen him there. For it is told me that he is very cunning. See, therefore, and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information. I want to make sure he's there. Then I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among the thousands of Judah. 
And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. All right, the reason why I want to put this out, this little story, the Ziphites, they sell them out. Like, hey, Saul, David's there. Don't you know he's there? He's hiding among us, the Ziphites say. Uh, we're told in Psalm 54, based out of this story, David wrote a psalm about the Ziphites. So if you want to look at this, I find this interesting. Throw uh, Psalm 54. It literally says right before the whole psalm, th- this part, it says, a mascal of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is David not hiding among us? So verse 19 They go to Saul, is David not hiding among us? And the Psalm gives us a preface and says, this is when David wrote that Psalm. When they said, hey, is David not hiding among us? And I want, like, it's basically revealing his heart in this moment. So why don't you turn to Psalm 54 so we get a little, again, window into David's soul at this moment. Psalm 54, is not David hiding among us? He goes, thank you guys, be blessed, you're awesome. How does David feel? Psalm 54, let me just like read that. Short Psalm, seven verses, Psalm 54. Here's what it says. David says, oh God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. Oh God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. And your faithfulness put an end to them. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. All right, in this psalm, notice what he says. He goes, they're seeking out my life. And then verse 3, I think, is the key, which I wanted to point out here. Verse 3, where he says, they do not set God before themselves. He goes, listen, the people who are seeking my life, they're not seeking you. God is not before them. That is a phrase David also used again in Psalm 16. Remember Psalm 16? We thought he wrote the same psalm during this time. David said in Psalm 16, uh, verse 8, he says, I have set the Lord always before me. Just, just hear me out on this. He's like, the problem with these men is they're not setting the Lord before them. David is saying at the same time in Psalm 16, I've always set the Lord before me. What does that even mean? He's basically saying, Lord, any decision, wherever I go, I want you at the center. I've always set you before me. Wherever my eyes turn, you're always before me. It's you. I'm seeking you. I'm after you, God. Again, there seems to be this this change where David's like, I'm setting the Lord, but I'm after you. I'm after your heart. It is you. When the Ziphites surrender me, when my enemies are seeking my life, my focus is on you. My world is falling apart, but my focus is on you. Everything is going wrong, but God, you are always set before me. I'm going to look at you, not my circumstances. I mean, how many times in scriptures do we see this idea of don't look at your circumstances and look at your Jesus? Like, I'm going to set the Lord always before me. It's Peter walking on water, when does he begin to sink? It's when he takes his eyes off of Jesus and onto his circumstances. He takes his eyes off of Jesus and onto the waves. That's when he sinks. And David is basically learning this lesson of, I'm going to keep my eyes set on you. The problem with my enemies is they don't have their eyes set on you. They're seeking after something else, but I'm seeking after you. So the Ziphites, they go. David writes a psalm in response. We'll kind of pick back up in our story just for the sake of time. But here's what we read next. In verse 24, Let's pick up in verse 24. It says, Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah, to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. 
And Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. Then a messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines, therefore, uh, against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. All right, so this is kind of like a weird Tom and Jerry kind of story. They're in the wilderness. There's this rock of escape. This like smooth rock is probably what's described as. And you have David on one side, Saul on one side. And it sounds like they're almost just chasing each other running around this rock, right? I don't know. This cat and mouse coming again. Then a messenger comes up and goes, hey, we're being raided. We got to go back. So Saul pulls away. That's what they call this a rock of escape. I mean, David also said, the Lord is my what? The Lord is my rock and my salvation, whom shall I fear? Psalm 27. There's just something about this Jesus being that rock of ages, the rock of escape. He goes, God, you're my rock. You're my salvation. This rock that separated me before my enemy. God, you are that rock. You're what gets in the way. And I love that David's like using like the moments in his life you can pull from that. And he's writing the Psalms. It's like a really beautiful thing when you see the, the big picture of it. But we're told this, that this is when David wrote Psalm 63. And I want to read Psalm 63, because if you know Psalm 63, it might be one of the most intimate, beautiful psalms I think that there is. And I think that when David wrote this, you see clearly, he's like, God, I'm after your heart. I'm after your heart. I don't even, it's not even your protection. I'm just after you. So Psalm 63, we got to turn there. Psalm 63, turn there, read it with me. Psalm 63, come on. Turn, I want to hear the Bible's pages turning. That just helps so much. Psalm 63, here's what David writes. Psalm 63. David says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate you in the watches of night, for you have been my help. In the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. Listen to this. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouth of liars will be stopped. If you notice right before the psalm, it has that little preface. It's a Psalm 63, a Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. The wilderness of Judah consisted of Engedi, Moan, Ziph. This is where David wrote that. David's in Moan, remember, he's in this. He just got from the rock of escape. And when you read, oh God, you are my God. I will seek after you. I want you to see this again just one more time because if you didn't catch the emphasis, you need to see the emphasis. Listen a few verses, we'll put them up here. He says it this way, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I what? I what? I seek you. My soul thirsts. My flesh faints. I remember upon my bed and meditate on in the night watches. For have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to your right hand upholds me. And then it says in verse 11, but the king shall rejoice in God. What I want us to see here is just David's like, I'm seeking you. I see, I'm seeking you. I want you. Not your help. Not just your direction. Not your hand. I want you. My soul thirsts for you. I long for you. You. 
This is really interesting. It is not wrong, like all of us, let's, let's be honest, all of us here want things from God. Like, of course we do. That's why we pray so often. We, we ask him for things. God, we need help, I'm tired, whatever it might be. Like we all want things from God. That's just a human part of life. But there's something about just going, okay, I want things from God, but more importantly, I just want God. It's very hard, I think, even for me, at different points in my life, when I'm going through things, I do go to God because I go, I really just want help right now. But sometimes I think there's this reminder of God's like, but do you just want me? Like, do you just want me? Not what I can do for you, but me. My soul thirsts for you. Earnestly, I will seek you. There is something about just nice knowing. You're like, someone's like, I'm not after what you can do for me. I'm just after you. It's not a fun feeling when you're like, you only want something from me. But there's something about, man, you just want me. In marriage, it's nice when you go, man, you, it's not just like a, this partnership, in which it is, but actually we, we want each other. We just want to hang out. We just want to be with each other. There's something beautiful. And you're like, it's not just like, what can you do? What can I do? How do we, you know, split up the chores here? That, that happens. But there comes a point where you go, man, we need to get back to just wanting to be together. My point is, like, in this, our walk with God, there's something really beautiful and God's like, okay, I get it. There's gonna be seasons where, like, hey, God, help. I need this. We do this. But I think that God is saying, I want you to be after my heart because I'm after your heart. I want you. Do you want me or do you want what I can do for you? You know, in Psalm 27, the same Psalm, the Lord said to David, David, seek my face. And David responded and says, your face, Lord, I will seek. The reason why that's so beautiful, like, David, seek my face, not my hand, not what I can do for you, but seek my face. And, and David's like, okay, then that's what I'm going to seek. I'm going to seek your face. David is seeking God's face. He's seek, seeking God's heart. He's seeking after God. Psalm 63 was written in the wilderness of Judah. That is where Moan is. That is where Ziph is. This is the only time that makes sense. There's a heart change happening to David where he's like, Saul's after me. Obviously, I want to stay alive, but you know what I really want? I just want you, God. Again, I think this is so important. Church, in our life, we're going to have a lot of wants, a lot of needs, a lot of prayer requests. I would say fight for time where you can just talk with the Lord alone and pray over Psalm 63. Like, make your prayer like, God, I want, I want Psalm 63 to be true. Like, I want it to be real. I really just want you. I thirst for you. I seek after you. Like pray, like God, make Psalm 63 real. If it's not real right now, because maybe you just still want something from God kind of relationship, and God's like, I just want to, I want to push you further into something more intimate and personal and real than just, you know, me meeting your needs here. And I'd say like, pray this, like God, let this be real in my life. I'd help me actually care. Like, I just want your heart. Something's happening in David. Saul over and over again, he's seeking David, seeking David, seeking David. David is just seeking earnestly, I will seek you. I want us to see that all of us are seeking after something. And if it's the wrong thing, we will continue to fill that void, that emptiness, that dryness. But David says, I seek after you and I feel this fatness. I'm full, this, this wealth, this rich. He describes like I'm rich and fat, which is like a, a term. I just, I'm enjoying you in such a beautiful way. Like I just feel full in my life. It's be- my relationship with you is so much past the surface. Do you know that God wants to bring us past the surface into the depth and meaningful time with him? Do you know that he doesn't want Bible study or prayer in the morning to just be this weird routine thing where our brain checks out and we're not actually enjoying him? God actually wants to have meaningful connection 
Do you know that, right? Like, this is something that we have to get, like, Sunday. It's so much more than just, like, how do I come and feel good and leave and go home? God's like, I want actually meaningful moments with you that inspire, like, depth in your life and a hunger for me, and you're seeking me, and you're after my heart, not just my hand, my pocketbook. Like, God's like, you're after me. And there's something so beautiful where, like, saying, okay, I'm going to change what I'm after, and it's just going to be after your heart. Yeah, the Lord said, seek my face. Okay, your face I will seek. That's what's happening to David in Psalm 63. That's what's happening to David in the wilderness of Judah, in the wilderness of Moan, in Ziph. There's this heart change that is happening to him. You following me? He's seeking God's heart. Now, the next chapter, which is a really interesting chapter, one long story, but we're gonna see David seeking God's character. He responds to Saul in the most well-known stories in a really, really interesting way. So let's just read this. It's, it's number three, seeking God's character. Look at uh, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 24. Chapter 24, verse one. So he escapes. The rock of escape, that just happened. The Psalm, Psalm 63 is written. Now verse four, chapter 24, verse one. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the, the wild goat rocks. It's a weird term, the wild goat rocks. By the way, En Gedi is beautiful. Um, you can still go to En Gedi. We've had the privilege of going to En Gedi twice. If you go to Israel, hopefully we're going in a couple of years. Go, we'll go to En Gedi. You'll see this beautiful water, waterfall there. En Gedi is such a weird spot because it's near the Dead Sea. It's like the only like flowing, nearby flowing waterfall. Because the Dead Sea, remember, it's dead. Like water goes there to basically die. There's nothing in the Dead Sea. But there's like one beautiful waterfall where there's life around because the Dead Sea is very deserty. But En Gedi actually has like a little mini paradise spot around, around a lot of death. So David's in En Gedi. He goes to wild goat rocks. Like what is that? Uh, in En Gedi, there's these ibexes. These are like goats. I don't even know how you say that. Ibexes, does that sound right? Maybe it's not. I don't know. But there's these goats everywhere. I remember we pulled up like in the, in the parking lot and there's these goats in the tree. In En Gedi. I'm like, I've never seen a goat in a tree. It's like literally just trees with goats in it. I'm like, this is the craziest place on earth. Um, so hopefully we'll go there. But he's in En Gedi. That's probably where he wrote this. In, remember the wilderness of Moan and in the wilderness of Judah? He's in En Gedi. Verse 3, it says, And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, uh, where there was a cave. And Saul sent in, and Saul went in to relieve himself. You know what that means. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. So he's in En Gedi. He's in this cave. Saul's using the bathroom. Verse four. And the men of David said to him, hey, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose. Now that word David arose, it's almost like he, it's, it's really interesting in the Hebrew. It's like he made a quick decision. He arose like, okay, I'm gonna do what you're saying. He arose and stealthily, and then you see him change his mind. He cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Do I kill him? And he cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Like he feels convicted. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. This is so fascinating. David's men, they're in and Gedi, they're in the cave. Saul's looking for him. Like, where's David? I don't know, I gotta go to the bathroom. He goes, he's using the bathroom. His robe is there. And his men are like in this dark cave going, um, kill him. He's using, like, he's so vulnerable. Like, obviously this must be God. Like, obviously the Lord is in this. Like he says that in verse four. The men of David say, behold, I will give you your enemy in your hand. Didn't God say this? God said, I'll do this. So like, this is the time. Take it, take it in your hand. Now again, remember we looked at earlier? 
Saul assumed kind of a similar thing. David's and Keilah, this must be God. His men are giving him the same advice. And I love it because David luckily didn't act fully on this. But again, it brings up the same point. Not every open door is a sign of God's will. I really do think that we see Saul think that and David's like actually begins to question that. Just because there's an opportunity to do this does not mean the Lord is in this. I'm not necessarily supposed to do this. Now, I want to point this out. David cut off a corner of, his, of Saul's robe. And like he, maybe he really determined for a second, I'm going to kill this guy. And then he's like, no, nah, I can't. I'm going to cut off this corner. And we're going to see what he's going to do with that in a second. But he cuts off a corner of his robe. And then immediately he feels conviction even for that. Now, David, that's fast. David has such a high level of conviction. That's a different level of conviction. I don't know if you, you know anyone like that. I don't know. I, I would just say this. We need men and women of high level conviction. That is a lost thing today, is it not? Where it's like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. He's the Lord's anointed. Who am I? To, we're not going to kill him. Men don't kill him. But he had such a high level of conviction. I, thought, I don't know. That's just, that's very unique. I just remember, this sounds so stupid. I don't know why I said my mind. When I was like in third grade, I remember one time I, t- I, I took a sticker from the sticker, bo- sticker box. I wasn't supposed to. And I remember it just killed me. It killed me all day. And I told the teacher, like sweating, like I took a, t- a sticker. She's like, that's okay. That's like, she's like, that's what they're there for. I'm like, oh, I, don't, I just felt like, yeah, no, no. so stupid. But I, the idea of like a high level of conviction this really is like a lost art, a lost thing. This is, notice the difference between Saul and David in that way. Saul's just assuming this must be God. Saul's just doing whatever he wants. David's seeking after God. David's like, I don't know. Even just cutting off his robe, he feels this guilt for. I mean, it's really fascinating what's happening in David's heart in this moment. And I find this interesting. He, he points this out in verse six, but I'll just put it up here again. It says, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put up my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. Twice he says the Lord's anointed. Like, yes, in, in one way, yes, he is because he was anointed king. But if you remember at this point in time, the spirit has departed from Saul. David is now the, the new, the Lord's anointed. But he's like looking back at the original anointing and he's honoring, he's not just honoring Saul, he's honoring that position. You know, listen, you might think you have a bad boss, right? You might think you have a jerk of an overseer. I mean, look at Saul and David and look at David's response. When I read this, I go, I have no, I, I could never complain about a boss after you like, read this story. You're like, oh, my boss is terrible. It's like, does your boss like try to kill you with like 3,000 men? I'm like, okay, maybe he's not that bad. David has this guy pursuing him, trying to seek after him. And he has so much respect and honor for him and for the role that he's in. And I think, listen, this is essential to David's future success. I'm trying to write it out this way. Respect for authority is essential to the success of your future authority. David will one day have future authority. Notice, I really do believe he's modeling to his men how to basically honor that office and honor that role. David is going to be the king. David doesn't have his son plan a rebellion against him. We're going to get to that soon. Like we're going to see, like David's still going to go through it. But David is showing his men, no, no, this is the Lord's anointed. You honor that. And I do believe David, you could say, is probably the most honored king that there is. Out of all of Israel's kings, he's probably the most honored king that they have. Even despite his sins, despite where he falls apart, David is still, when when you talk about the kings of Israel, the most honored king that there is. And I'd say this, it began with him following well. If you want to lead well, you have to follow well. If you want to lead, if you want to ever have authority and people honor your authority, you have to honor other people's authority ahead of you. There's just something about this. I feel like very early on in like my time in ministry where you still clock in, clock out, and there's still this element of overseer and job kind of mentality to it. I had to learn this early on. Like, listen, if I ever want people to honor me, I have to honor those above me. Even when I go, but this is hard and difficult and we don't see eye to eye. Like the, 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 basically the success of your future begins now with how do you honor? 
how do you honor those above you? David is honestly living a life where I go, I, you're, you're just a different guy. 99 out of 100 people would have killed Saul, right? Am I, am I wrong about that? Someone's after your life. I mean, like, we're, we're Americans. We're, we're bad with this. We're like, oh. he's, like, he's like, 99 out of 100 is like, I have every right to do this. David's like, no, no, I can't. I can't do that. This is God's anointed. I, I can't, I can never, I can't respond this way. He had high level of conviction. He honored authority. He, he realized not every open door means the Lord is in it. And so here's what happens next. We'll keep reading verse eight. Verse eight, it says, afterward, said Mary, cut off a piece. Afterward, David also rose and he went out of the cave. So Saul leaves, he leaves. And he calls after Saul, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looks behind him, David bowed his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day, your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. I'm not being wicked. Verse 14, after whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea, that's who I am. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Now we're gonna read Saul's response to this, but this is crazy. This is crazy to me because he literally just spared Saul. We know Saul is like gone mad. Like he's filled with rage to kill David. And David, you know what? After Saul leaves, he goes, my Lord, my King. That is absolutely mind blowing to me that David can look at Saul and call him Lord and King. I mean, David has a, a level of humility that is beyond me, but I believe that David knew something that maybe we don't know, that this was the path to reconciliation was humility. The only way, maybe, maybe, maybe if there could ever be reconciliation between me and Saul, I have to take on a crazy role of humiliation. I have to take on this role, that's what humility is. Humility is humiliation. It's like, I'm gonna be the one who puts myself at this advantage. I'm the innocent one. And he goes, and he's basically making this case. He goes, I'm not after your life. Look, I have your robe. I could have killed you, but I didn't. And he goes, he calls himself a flea, a dog. He's basically like, look, like, look at who I am. Look at who you are. He, to me, is taking on this approach that I don't know how many of us would, would have. Like how many of us would, would respond in this way? And here's the crazy thing. It is going to lead to part, like for a short amount of time, it's going to lead to reconciliation. For a short amount of time, it's going to lead to Saul going, I'm not going to kill you. But he, David knew, I'm going to try this route. I'm going to try this route of like, I'm going to take ownership. That is mind-blowing to me. Here's how I, I think the only, the, David lived out Romans 12. Romans 12 says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. David lived this out. David at that point in time could have been overcome by evil, meaning like, oh my gosh, this guy's out to kill me, I'm gonna kill him. But he's like, I'm gonna overcome evil with good. I'm gonna show him, hey, I could have done this, but I didn't. I didn't do this. Listen to Saul's response, verse 16. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, this is just so crazy. I feel like he has schizophrenia, honestly. Saul said, is this your voice, my son, David? My son. And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I. Yeah. For you have repaid me good. 
whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king. Notice these words. And that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, you will not kill them, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Now, stay with me. We're going to see chapter 25, a completely different story for one chapter. But right back in chapter 26, Saul's ready to kill David again. It lasts a little while. It lasts a little while. But it, it did do something. This crazy humility, this like, look what I could have done, but I didn't do it. It did have some sort of emotional trigger in response to Saul. He's going, my son, David. Again, something's up with Saul. Sorry, he calls him son. I'm like, what? You wanted to kill this guy. He's like, my son, David. Oh, you thank you. Like, it's crazy, this, what's going on. But I want us to see this. I think the only way, again, the only way to kind of restore what was, the, that only path, is a, a crazy, insane amount of humility. I mean, think, think about this. David had every right to kill him. Saul's after him, trying to kill him. And yet, he can't. David could have, he doesn't. And you see now, like, this moment, this exchange between them of, like, you showed me kindness. I'm going to show you kindness. There's one chapter off, a side story where he doesn't. But you saw that basically this idea of forgiveness, this idea of let me, let me not, you know, render evil for evil. Let me not respond that. Let me render good for evil. You see that do something to him. That did something to his heart temporarily. I love what one pastor said about this. This was fascinating. This is how we'll close out. Alan Redpath, listen to what he said. Alan Redpath said, this poor wretched man, Listen, read this with me. This poor wretched man who spent his days battling against God had suddenly come face to face with the love and patience of God shining out through another man's life. And for a moment, it melted Saul. It would seem that just for a moment, stupidity and folly, but alas, he had been so held in the grip of passion that he had no longer had power to shake off his madness. It is only the love of God shed abroad by the Holy Spirit that can cause effective repentance and cleansing. Not simply Christian work or service, but the shining sweetness and fragrance of the love of Jesus Christ. It is this with touches a life that is out of adjustment to the will of God. It is this which makes a man realize that he has been a fool and that he has sinned. It is the love that melts coldness of heart and brings conviction. The only thing that brought a little bit of conviction to this crazy man was this extreme amount of forgiveness and love. You see, here's the idea. This story does reflect us. You have to see this because the idea is, the gospel says it this way, that Saul, we are more wicked than Saul and Jesus is more forgiving and kind than David. Like I need, David's innocent. He's innocent, but he's willing to forgive. David didn't do any sin, but he still says, I forgive you. See, essentially what's happening is what we'd see at the cross. The cross where men are mocking and spitting and he just goes, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What, what I want us to see is that you and I are more guilty than Saul. We are more wicked than Saul. You, we can look at Saul and go, what a terrible, wicked guy. The Bible talks about our sin as being wicked. Like even our righteousness is as filthy rags to God. 
Like we are just as, if not even more wicked in our heart of hearts than Saul. We are just as murderous, just as lustful, all those things. It's like we are just as wicked as Saul. And look at the innocence of David. Look at the kindness of David. Look at the forgiveness of David. And Jesus is more kind and forgiving than that. We are more guilty. Jesus is more loving. This is a beautiful, and the only thing that can like really lead to a little bit of like repentance here is that crazy amount of love. Now, but that wasn't enough. It was like this man, is like, you know, on earth, we need this from heaven. Like meaning we need to have this realization that despite my wickedness, my filth, my grossness, God has forgiven me. God has loved me. God has pursued me. God is after my heart. God says, I forgive you. Come home. There's this beautiful response we have from God. See, again, I try to write it this way. The gospel is you are more wicked than Saul and Jesus is more innocent and forgiving than David. He is. G- David is crazy, crazy amount of forgiving and kind to Saul. But Jesus is even more forgiving. Jesus is even more innocent. Jesus is even more kind than David. You see, we have someone else who is willing to approach us and run to even though we're in sin, even though we're in sin, we have someone who comes to us and seeks out reconciliation. Even though our hearts are far from God, he comes to us. You see, we have someone who's way more innocent and way more kind and way more forgiving, and his name is Jesus. And we need to know this Jesus. You see, David right now, in how he he responded in the cave, we're seeing just a piece of the character in the heart of God. That God's like, even while you're in sin, even while you're at your worst, I died for you. Even while you're at your lowest point, I died for your sins, Romans 5, 8. While you're at your worst, I still died for you. That is the love of God. Have you received that love of God? Do you know that love of God? If not, do so today. Yes, amen. Listen, learn from David. He sought God's direction. He sought God's heart. He sought to live out God's character in a very low moment. I just want to end by just responding to that, by worshiping God, by saying, if you want to know this God, you can. Uh, We want to sing. We want to worship. We want to just spend some time thanking him. So let's do this. I'm going to invite the worship team back up here. Why don't you guys take a second, bow your head, close your eyes. We're going to pray, but before we do pray, why don't you just kind of still your heart a little bit and just say, Lord, I want to hear from you. I want to receive from you. I want to worship you. I want to seek your heart, not just your hand. If you would, just kind of take a second and talk to God. I'm going to be quiet. I'm going to ask before we do anything. I hope the room can be still, can be quiet, and you can just kind of spend a moment with the Lord. Let's do that.